Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to Mike and Maurice's Mind Escape. Let us help you escape your mind. Folks, welcome back to Mike and Maurice's Mind Escape. We have episode number 296 tonight. We are approaching 300, as well as coming up on six years. Um, six years, probably, I think, next week. Uh, Maurice will be back on somewhat soon. Um, you know, uh, we'll talk about that. I, uh, you know, there'll be a time where, you know, I think we're going to discuss getting them back on regularly, but... Um, yeah, we're going to try and do something good for 306 years, uh, which should be interesting, but we have a special episode tonight. Uh, I have Robert Schneiker on, uh, who is a geophysicist and, um, we're going to be discussing the age of the Sphinx and he has a little bit of a different hypothesis on what he thinks, uh, the erosion, um, is and uh we'll talk about some of his previous work and as well as some other related topics as well uh robert does have a website at robertschneiker.com i have the link down below um and the best way to support mind escape is to click the link tree link down below we have merch app store patreon um you name it there's tons of stuff in there just click on the link tree um if you want to leave us a nice review on Apple or Spotify, we, you know, we do have video podcasts on Spotify as well. If you listen to one of those platforms, please check us out on YouTube uh, where we do all of our episodes live. And if you are watching live on YouTube, please check out uh, us on Spotify uh, and Apple podcast as well. Um, but without further ado, welcome on the show, Robert. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. So you reached out to me uh, via email and we started talking a little bit. Um, you have a little bit of a different take on the aging of the Sphinx, which is something we've talked a lot about on the show. Uh, we've had all the alternative minds pretty much, except for maybe like Robert Schock but, or Graham Hancock. But, you know, we've talked about this with Randall Carlson and Laird Scranton and all these different people. Um, what is your 
not to jump right into it, but what's your background um, regarding um, the Sphinx? And then how did you get into this whole controversy of it? Well, that, that's pretty much the same answer. Um, I'm not so much looking at the age of the Sphinx because I'm saying what the Egyptologists are saying is, is the correct age. Uh, what I'm saying is, is what everyone has described as erosion isn't really mostly erosion. There is definitely some erosion on the Sphinx. And that kind of gets me into what started all of this. So I, I can't believe this now. Almost to the day, now that I think about it, 11 years ago, I was watching Nova on public television. And there was an episode on the Sphinx. And I really wasn't that enthused about the Sphinx. I'm like, can we have something more interesting? <clears throat> and then as I'm watching, all of a sudden, at one point, Mark Lehner is explaining how shallow groundwater is waking up at the Sphinx, and as it evaporates in the hot desert sun, salt is accumulating in the pore spaces. Through time, that, that salt in the pore builds up pressure, and it causes the rock to exfoliate, which kind of looks like giant Pringles potato chips, and he says it's turning the, the Sphinx into Sphinx dust. And he's looking actually on the side wall, the southern side wall of, of the Sphinx, and I was thinking, well, what I do in my day job is I have a contaminant transport and fate modeling package. And states use that, the, the models in the software. I didn't pick the models. I, I use the models that the states had already picked and I, I just made it easier to use. And under certain conditions, the contamination, instead of leaching down to the water table, like rain falling on the ground, like a coffee maker, picking up contamination and carrying it down, sometimes it can actually wick up off the water table and reach the surface where, like the salt, it might accumulate or other contaminants might just volatilize to the atmosphere. And it's a difficult process for engineers and geologists to understand. And in fact, the first time I ever saw the model do that, I thought, well, this model is just crazy. That, that, that can't happen. That's, that's, whatever's gone here, I've gone beyond the bounds of what this model should be used for. But no, actually, the model was telling me something. So I wanted to use the Sphinx as an example in my training seminars on how the contamination like the salt could wick up and concentrate at the surface. And that's in the process of doing that. That's when I found Robert Schock and, you know, saying that the Sphinx is older. And I thought, oh, my God, he's he's using the fact that wicking groundwater is occurring to create a lost civilization. So I did my modeling and I, I realized, no, the, the this that, that wicking groundwater cannot possibly account for the degree of erosion on the Sphinx. It can only work. It only works for the lowest levels. And because most of the past four thousand five hundred years, the Sphinx has been buried in sand, that process didn't even occur. So there's very little of erosion from that process, and it certainly couldn't cause the Sphinx to look as eroded as it is. So now I'm hooked. Now I'm like, okay, this is a mystery. Nobody can figure it out. I'm gonna see if I can. And I started with the deposition of the rock 40 million years ago, carried it through all the way till today. And I still couldn't figure out why the Sphinx looked the way it does. There was, there was no point in which it's, since it's been constructed, that it could have been eroded. I, I could dismiss people like shock because the Sphinx, we were talking about it, you haven't been there yet, but you, you gotta go, um, is actually in the Nile floodplain. 
So um, when I went to Egypt, one of the most special places for me was to see the Nilometer, which is basically a stream gauge. And the ancient Egyptians would use this to predict the level of the Nile. So somebody, somewhere around 4,500 years ago, 5,000 years ago, I don't know the details, figured out that if you measure the Nile every day and do that year after year after year, you can use the levels in any given year to predict how high it's going to go that year. It's not foolproof, but it's 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 pretty good in most years. It would it would give you a good idea, and they use that for tax purposes. But it also the nilometer tells me that the Sphinx, which is at twenty meters above sea level, it's at about five meters above the level of the Nile. It tells me that it's in the Nile floodplain. So there's actually the highest water level ever measured at the nilometer is twenty one point four meters. So that means that there was a molt of water around the Sphinx. And that was like in the 1870s. And I didn't even so know what it, the nilometer it, was too until you sent me that uh, uh, slideshow, which I thought was very interesting. Um, but yeah, that's that's super, super interesting. I'm glad you sent that to me. It's, you know, no tourists go there. When, when I went to the nilometer, it was after a, a wonderful day at the Egyptian Museum. And then the driver was, you know, taking us to the nilometer. It's on an island in the Nile. And he, he couldn't find it. And when we get there, he had to call back to the hotel manager to tell him how to get to this spot. And we get there, and there's nobody else there. And there's one guy, and you got to tip him to get in. And we came in. It's like a little mosque. So this one is... I don't know, it's like 1400 years old, but there's there's data from the nilometer that goes back to the time of the ancient Egyptians around the time that the Sphinx was built. I don't know the details, but it's on the Palemo stone and it has nilometer data on that. So, um, <clears throat> so anyway, so I'm looking at this and I, I'm trying to figure out, so, so getting back to this, so when, if the Sphinx, so Robert Schock is right in saying that there was a time between roughly 12,000 years ago and 5,500 years ago when there was increased precipitation and it actually turns the Sahara green. <clears throat> so roughly every 20,000 years for like the last, I should have looked this up, I think 8 million years at least, the, the Sahara is going back and forth between a desert and a savanna. And during a savanna, there's abundant precipitation, and it's all driven by the Milankovitch cycles. I don't know if I want to get into that, but it's that's basically what's driving it. So as the ice age ends, it turns out that's when the Sahara turned green. So, so 15,000 years ago, at the beginning of the bowling alarod, it turned green briefly. Then during the Younger Dryas, it reverts back to desert. Then at the end of the Younger Dryas, it goes back to precipitation the green savanna, and then 5,500 years ago, roughly, it, it it reverts to desert. And pr so during the time when it's a green Sahara, all that water that's falling, or a lot of it that's falling over northern Africa, is funneled down the Nile. Well, if the Sphinx existed, it would not exist today. Or at the very least, it would have a bathtub ring like Lake Powell, we're seeing, you know, lakes out west where they have these reservoirs. It would, at, at a minimum, it would have to have that. But given the soft rock of the member two section of the Sphinx, it it wouldn't be here. So I knew that yeah, shock was wrong. We were, In fact, <clears throat> that's what we were talking about 
off air is I don't know a ton about the geology of it, but I do remember seeing some of the um, diagrams where it shows the three different members of Shoal and how they kind of come on an angle um, and that, uh, yeah, I mean, this is fascinating. So like what you're talking about, the, these cycles, though, this is the this is the reason why John Anthony West would always say, oh, the Sphinx could be 30,000 or 33,000 years old because he's thinking in the terms of that's when it was wet last or wettest last, right? Well, actually, he's thinking of when it was dry last because and then it would have been exposed during a green Sahara. So, yeah, so the Sphinx could only have been built. So, I mean, there's some sense in that. I mean, I, I understand the logic in that. The Sphinx could only have been built... And the 30,000 number sounds about right. And at some point prior during the Ice Age or during the Younger Dryas, the Sphinx could have been built. But it's only when it's when it's dry, when the, when the Nile levels are low, because if the Nile's flooding, the, the area that the Sphinx is in would be underwater. So you're saying that if it was that old, that it would have, the erosion would have already washed it away or made it just like, a, a, you know, a nub. <laughs> to say or something like that right like something not recognizable no, as a sphinx exactly. yeah exactly it, it would be long gone um one of the other things that i mean and it's just weird how people don't seem to question these things so shock is saying that the younger dryas was a period of increased precipitation that is not true the younger dryas was a period a cold dry period so the whole thing of the solar flare that shock is talking about that begins at the beginning of the Younger Dryas, the, you know, 12,900 years ago and then ends 11,700 years ago, is not a wet period. It's a dry period. So shock is wrong about saying that that's when the precipitation occurred that weathered the Sphinx. He's got it backwards. So, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, that makes sense, actually. Um, so, when he's talking about so that the reason why we're talking about this is Robert Chalk's famous for saying that there's water or weathering erosion around the base of the Sphinx, um, and that occurred. Uh, he thinks, well, I mean, in his book, I think it's roughly all at the end of the last ice age and younger dry era. So, what does that make it? Uh, Twelve thousand or eleven thousand? You know, he ties it in with Gobekli Tepe and Easter Island. Um, which I know a decent amount about Easter Island. We did a whole series on it from the mainstream theories to the alternative theories and everything in between and even bringing up some of my own research that I've done. Um, and I don't understand where he gets that dating, even if you're talking about the older basalt moai that are found there. Um, so, I mean, that's, I think, his, his selling point on that, along with making it seem like the bird symbolism looks very similar to the vulture symbolism on the T-pillar 43 at Gobekli Tepe, which I don't agree that those look that close at all. But um, I'm not here to dissect anything. I'm not here to be a skeptic. I'm just telling you what I know. Uh, but uh, so you're saying that you disagree with him. But what I mean, oh, no, I'm you... saying that he can't be right because the younger Dryas was a cold, dry period. That's okay. I don't think that's a point for discussion that that's a fact right so why um why do we have what looks like the weathering or the erosion then around I Let's... Think a great question yeah i was just thinking i mean for me it was one of the most difficult things to try to figure out what's happening at the sphinx 
like every geologist and every archaeologist that has ever looked at the Sphinx, I looked at it and said, how did this erosion occur? And, and I kept looking for geological process to create that erosion. I mean, so shock, and I understand why he would say that it would, it would be eroded by precipitation. I mean, it, it certainly looks like some type of erosion. There's, there's no question that it, if I looked at that, if I You can I see saw it over that, your shoulder, anybody that's watching yeah. right now, if you're watching this, yeah. you could see those lines, those fissure lines, those vertical fissure lines, and you can see it over my shoulder as well, if you're looking. You know, um, I don't know. I'll just keep. Well, if we pull up one of the slides, because I'm looking at the thing over me. So if you see that there's, I don't know if I can do that backwards. There's, I can pull um, up a slide if you want. You want me to pull up the slideshow? Yeah, yeah. yeah, pull up the one where it's where it's a really old black and white photo of the Sphinx. I don't know if I can go. I might have to go through systematically through each one. Um, it's going to be a ways down. You think it's going to, like, what What? What slide do you think? Mm, <laughs> it's it's going to be, like, 20-ish, I'm going to guess. Okay. Let me it, see. If you flip through, I'm not seeing anything changing at my end. Okay. But, um, but it was, if you can if you can pull that up, the reason being is, is that see, I looked at that layer and I said, oh, now you've gone too far because that's, I think, the end. So back okay. up. There's uh, Mark. There's there's John Anthony There's West. <laughs> That's is that it? No, no too far. Keep going. Aerial. That is a black and white one. Yeah, <laughs> that one's an important one. But okay, there's the nilometer data. Keep going. It's got a. It's got a. It's major there, fissure. Okay, we got it. So if you look at the nape of the neck there, it does not have the concrete patch. So that was put on around 1925, and that was really telling for me because that's that is evident now that the greatest degree of erosion is at the neck. And in fact, they, they patched it because they were worried that the head would fall off because that's also the softest layer of rock. So th when I saw that, when I saw this old photo, I'm like, okay, I don't know what's going on, but that is not precipitation because precipitation falling from above would have been protected from, the, from erosion by the cap rock of the head itself. Well, what is Mark... Leonard say doesn't he say it's like wind erosion almost like what you would see in the American Southwest when you see all those you know magnificent so you know like yeah, Utah well, it's a Idaho you know yeah. yeah a yarding that's actually Farouk El Baz and uh, he's kind of a hero of mine but he's wrong <laughs> he he and again there was just a recent paper that um, that said that the Sphinx was actually carved from an existing uh, exposure of a yarding and definitely when you're out in the Sahara Desert and I've been lucky enough to do that you definitely see yardings and you look at it and you go like yeah it kind of looks like the shape of the Sphinx but that can't possibly be the case at Giza because um, if you look at looking at this picture you're seeing basically member two which is the one that looks eroded and then member three of the head and um, George Reisner in 1942, an archaeologist, said that the top of the head actually marks the top of the limestone at Giza prior to construction of the pyramids. And I completely agree with him that that's roughly the, the surface. The surface that you see at Giza today, that you, that you walk on when you're there, that's not natural. 
they they cut down they they carved off that really soft layer at the neck and left the other rock in place the member two rock in place um because it wasn't that good for quarrying but the limestone of the head extended over most of the giza area prior to the sphinx being constructed so there's no way that the sphinx was a yarding because it was just it, it wasn't flat it was some kind of a regular surface but it certainly wasn't exposed to to wind erosion so that that idea is out i don't know if mark laner says that mark in his dissertation i'm gonna say um, mark he, said anything that everybody disagrees no i'm joking <laughs> <laughs> we'll just put it so on I him met with, i met with mark twice there was actually a point you're gonna love this where I was with him, I met with him in Cairo, and we were talking about the Sphinx. And he said that shock is right. <laughs> because he was there during a rainstorm, and the precipitation came in to the Sphinx enclosure exactly as, as, as he said to shock has described. And I was like, oh my goodness. <laughs> How do I explain? Yeah, I should have got this on tape. <laughs> Oh, no, I mean, I don't, I think Mark is very open and talking about things. I mean, he talks about his past. He's he's he's, he's an easy person to, to talk so to. So would you say he's open-minded, though? Because I know a lot of people use him kind of the way they use Zahi is like the anti-mystery, anti, you know, um, I don't even know what the word I'm looking for, anti-mysticism aspects of it. Oh, they're definitely playing both Laner and Hawass that way. And I, in my opinion, very incorrectly. I, I don't think either one is doing that. Um, I don't think either one should be picked on for that. Hawass is, you know, being the, well, I forgot his exact title, but, you know, we were talking before the, the program came on about people taking tours to Egypt. And, um, you know, you were questioning the information that they're going to get that's being presented to them by various groups. You know, the, the tourism people in, in Egypt, they don't care. If you want to come there and believe the pyramids were built by aliens, we got that. If you want to go there and learn about ancient, ancient Egyptians, they have that. Just as long as you come there and spend the money. Yeah. So I think Hawass is kind of, you know, I think he's been called on that a couple of times of and, and I think he's kind of put in a very odd position to to keep the discussion going on all these other things. So I mean, he was on Ancient coming. Aliens himself too. So I mean, was he? Yeah, he's on an episode. He's in the uh, one of the episodes actually on the Sphinx when they're talking about like the Dream Steel and all that kind of stuff. He's I think it's like a two hour episode. It was like a like um I don't really watch it. I used to watch it a lot back in the day, but I do remember him being on like the first episode of one of the seasons where it was like a longer episode and he was like the main person that they were talking to pretty much. So I'm trying to figure out where we were. We were talking about the getting back to the Sphinx. Um so the the head, the neck, the so it's so oh, so my whole point was when I looked at this and I can understand why shock and not just shock, why Laner, why Hawass, why other geologists that have looked at the Sphinx, I can understand why they think that that's erosion on, on the surface of member two there. The, the, the interval that you're seeing pretty much from the, the, the neck down is, is pretty much, I think that's all member two. So I, I, to me, I, I was in that for the longest time. 
and I found no way that there was any geological process. And in fact, it wasn't until after I, and I spent like a year reading papers, finding everything I could about the geology of the Sphinx, trying to see is there something about it that would help me understand why it looks like this. And my conclusion was I, I didn't find a thing. I could not find a geological explanation. And I kind of out of frustration went back and watched the very Nova episode that started all of this. And I forgot about the part where they were going to carve a new nose for the Sphinx. They actually did two things. They, they, car they tried to carve a new nose and they tried to carve and they carved a miniature Sphinx. So the miniature Sphinx was carved out of limestone obtained somewhere near Giza. And the person carving it said, look, I'm using my stainless steel tools on this and it's dulling them. I can't do this. And they, in the nose that they were, there was someplace in Maine and they got a piece of really high quality limestone, almost like a marble. And they tried carving that uh, with stone tools and they couldn't do it. They had to resort to power tools. But I, but I instantly realized, I'm like, well, that's not what you have here. I already knew that the rock of the, and member two is so soft in places you could crumble it with your fingers. And that's when I went, oh, they use those tools. That's why it looks the way it does. Are you there? Yeah. No, I'm listening. I'm, I'm fascinated. Yeah. So, um, that's, so that, and, so, and, and I was like, so I was like, now I got to convince myself of that. That was not an easy thing to do because I'm playing devil's advocate with that. But what was your, what were you going to say? No, so I was just going to say, so if you can break off pieces with your fingers, is that why there's all these accounts of them restoring it? Because people are always like, well, why were they restoring it, you know, a thousand years or a hundred years after they originally built it? Why, you know, look at the pyramid, you know, that's like one of the arguments. So, um, and it's a valid argument. Yeah, I, I yeah, no, completely I yeah. agree. Yeah, it looks. It doesn't look anything like it. It looks older. It looks entirely different. And so, yeah, how do you account for that? And I'm saying it's it was it was pounded back. And so, why why is it the softest layer at the neck? <laughs> and this is the craziest because there's points here. I'm like, okay, this this that now I've become as crazy as all the other people. <laughs> Where you know some people see lost a good mystery will do that to you, right? I mean, oh, I was like, okay, I, I was laughing at myself because if you look at the neck, so well, I looked at that and I said, that looks like a dissolution horizon. So that looks like a global warming event. That's an extinction event. That's an event not as significant, but on the order of the event that killed off the dinosaurs is in the Sphinx. And I'm like, okay, now I'm really crazy. I'm like, that can't be. So then I'm, I'm, and I met with Mark when I met with him in Boston and I told him that. And I said, I, th I think that it is what's called the middle Eocene climatic optimum is exposed in the Sphinx. I mean, that's like finding the iridium layer in the Sphinx. And he said, can you tell me more about it? And I said, I don't know that much about it. And, and at that point, what I, I, I said, I don't know, but there's a, there was a um, person who studies hyperthermals at the Smithsonian. So I wrote him and I said, I think that 
the 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 the, the Miko is exposed in the in the Sphinx, and he said that the Miko is in SBZ seventeen, and I'm. Now channeling Mr. Mom, I'm thinking SBZ 17 or 18, whatever it takes. I'm like, I don't know what that is. I quickly found out that those are minute periods of geologic time, very small periods in geologic time. And, it, and so I looked into that and I found a paper that specifies SBZ 17 and 16 and all of this. And it turns out that one of the ways in which you determine which layer you're in is by a particular by particular fossils, and the fossil that designates SBZ sixteen, which is just below, is Numulites gizihensis. I think you can tell by the name that it's at Giza, and it's a fossil that it's a Numulites, and it and, it, and it's these like coin shaped fossils, and it makes up much of the rock from Member Two that the Sphinx is carved from, and in the head. It's extinct. the The ocean acidification killed it all. Yeah. Do you do you do we know. have a slide for this? Somebody was asking if there's a slide. Um, I presented a paper on it. Damn it! I was going to send you the uh, PDF on it. I, it took me a while to find that. Um, no, no, you're basically good. it's you're good. Um, it's basically looking at the, at that photo that we were just looking at. So. I kept quiet. I mean, I was talking about it. I was trying to get people to give me input on this. And so I was at the GSA conference, the Geological Society of America meeting conference in Portland a year ago, October. And I am there and this person who I don't recognize at first walks up to me and says, I think you're right. And I'm like, of course, <laughs> I'm always right. But I said, about what? Dude, that's the first said, step. You're in. You need that. I'm right. Once you've got that, I was, it's I was, gravy, you know, baby. Just, <laughs> yeah. So as soon as he said, I said about what? And he goes, the Miko. And then I instantly knew who he was. He's one of the professors here at UW-Madison, and he studies hyperthermals. And and so I, he said, you emailed, and I did. I emailed him, and I went to his office. And I remember, you know, and I thought, okay, I never heard anything from him. And I'm just there at this conference and he walks up and I was like, holy shit. <laughs> so that's, so this year I presented that, that paper or not, not this year, but a year ago. So that was two years ago. I'm sorry. When I, when he did that. So last year in Denver, I presented a paper on the exposure of the Miko, but that explains why that particular layer is so soft. I got a crazy story to tell you this. <laughs> so Have at it. while I'm giving, so while I'm giving my presentation, I'm at the GSA conference in Denver, and I'm wondering, well, who else is here? You know, and what what are they presenting papers on? So, you know, I went down the list, and exactly the same time that I'm doing my poster presentation, Walter Alvarez is presenting a paper. Do you know who that is? You ever hear of the asteroid that killed off the dinosaurs? Yeah, I mean, 65 million He's years the guy ago. who found it. Oh, really? He's the That's guy crazy. who found the iridium layer. Oh wow! He and his father, and and, and he was doing a um, so he was doing. He gave a paper, and that's what I sent you that paper on because he's got a lot of the really great details of the Nile. Um, Are you talking about the really, the really, sud, the lake sud, or whatever you? Yeah, said? the yeah. mega lake sud. Yeah. And so he was giving a presentation on that, which was really kind of fun because as I was talking to him about it i knew a great deal about that and he kept saying how do you know this nobody knows this how do you know this 
And then he went over to my presentation and I said, it's kind of like finding the iridium layer that killed off the dinosaurs. But I, and I can't believe I'm telling you this. <laughs> so, so that was like one of those moments you're just like, I, I mean, so there's a lot of. So what we're saying is it's six. It's also sixty-five million years old. Is what we're. No, so what <laughs> it's so that. So what it's saying is is that the that layer that's exposed in the Sphinx is a global warming event, a catastrophic event that occurred almost exactly forty million years ago. So that that dates that, and it is a worldwide global event. So part of the Sphinx member, huge amount, yeah. So part of the Sphinx member so is forty of, million right? years old, basically. Yeah, yeah, we can date it very accurately and say that's, but that explains why that layer is so soft. Because what happened then is is that the muck that that was settling down out of the out of the ocean with the fossils and things in it, <clears throat> the ocean became so acidic instead of depositing rock, it, 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 it eroded, dissolved the limestone because the, the ocean became so acidic. And then slowly, as the ocean acidification returns to normal, then you start getting dep deposition of limestone again, this time with more clay in it and no fossils. And that's the member three section of the head. And that was a capstone. So that's the reason that the Giza, it's not a plateau, as you pointed out several times, it's, it's actually dipping. And so that's the reason it's an anticline, and that's the reason that the anticline is there. So had this global warming event 40 million years ago never occurred, then the Sphinx and the pyramids would not be there today. It's crazy, right, to think about the causal line, <laughs> a 40 million year old causal line that led to that and still standing to this day. That's insane to think about. Yeah, I mean, it's because that particular event happened. So anyway, so getting back to, I mean, looking at the Sphinx, I mean, you don't have to know all of that, but you just have to know that that layer at the neck is, is very soft. And it's weird how nobody really, it, it, I agree. I mean, like, because I've seen Hancock and other people say this, it's horrible what they've done to it, the Sphinx with the, with the repairs that, I mean, we're in total agreement on that. They're, 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 that's like scribbling on, on a masterpiece. You know, there's there, and and it's and it's also concealing what actually happened, and it makes the rock from which the Sphinx was carved from look more look like a higher quality, because there's that fracture in that picture, and if you go to the right behind, just to the west of the head, if you go there today, that's not there. That's been filled in with concrete. Very fascinating. Um... So where do we stand now? Where, where are you, where's your, um, if you so had So what I'm saying is, yeah, good point. So where, what I'm saying is, is that everyone's wrong. I was wrong when I was looking for erosion and I was looking, I, I looked at it with the blind. So you're talking about you were wrong about the part with like the salt deposits that would wick and fall off. And... No, 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 that's, that's there. Okay. But I was wrong in thinking that. The, the the other things that I'm seeing above that, gotcha. I was I'm wrong in saying that's erosion. I was wrong. Everyone's wrong. That's not erosion. And like I said, I had the blinders on. I was only when I looked back at that video, and I saw them using the stone tools, and I went, "Duh!" <laughs> now I know how they did it. Those layers are so soft that explains why it was pounded back. 
So that's that's what my paper's on right now that I'm working on. Oh, I love on. it. So the whole mystery of where did the erosion come from? There's no there's no erosion. This is part of a 40 million year old mystery having to do with geology and um you know, like you said, uh, that's crazy. Um so, so Mark Lehner Is there more evidence of this though? Say, yeah. Go ahead. So so the one of the things is is that the rocks so yeah, so the first repair you mentioned the dream steel, I think earlier, before we started recording, and yeah, so the dream steel is there, and and it was put there by Tutmos the fourth, and it was put there eleven hundred years after the Sphinx was made, and he claims that you know he, he repaired the Sphinx and because he had this dream and it goes through it, and he definitely I shouldn't say claimed he actually did repair the Sphinx. The thing is, is that the first layer of rock, of limestone that was applied to the Sphinx body is high quality limestone that had been used up by the time Thutmose IV came around. So the question is, <clears throat> where did he get that? Where did he get the limestone? Because those quarries have been depleted. And Hawass says, like me, that the Sphinx was covered with blocks from day one. So it was pounded back creating basically the surface that you're seeing there today. There's even a shelf at the bottom and, and, and that the blocks were st stacked upon. And, and for some reason, they actually cut the backside of the blocks to fit the undulations. And then that filled in the gap between the member one limestone at the bottom and the, and the member three at the top. And I was like, well, okay, so Hawass is saying exactly what I'm saying. That's how the Sphinx was made. But then he goes on to say that those blocks were applied after the Sphinx had eroded and that the 1100 year period from its construction to the repairs made by Tutmos IV are more than enough time for the erosion to have occurred. I'm like, he's saying both. I, I don't know, I can't figure it out. Lehner, on the other hand, says that the blocks came from the causeway, <clears throat> that when Tutmos IV went to repair the Sphinx. He looted the blocks from the, the causeway, <clears throat> but he also goes on to say that the only reason, the only reason that Lehner did not say that the phase one blocks are associated with the original construction of the Sphinx is because of the erosion beneath the blocks. And I'm saying that's not erosion. Those are the original blocks like like he, like me, like everyone was thinking that that was erosion. It's not erosion. So that explains where the limestone came from that they used as the blocks to cover the irregular surface of the Sphinx. So we get so a question. Uh, Chris, uh, a.k.a. Dabbler's Den, he's been a guest on the show before. He's a, a science teacher. He um, He was asking, what about the vertical you know, fissures or the vertical, like, where is that coming from then? Is that just from wear and tear? Like, what's the actual cause of those vertical fissures? So Africa is moving north. I don't think that's something I wish I knew more about, but Africa is moving north. And a limestone, if you could see a limestone from the air, it, it would kind of look like shattered safety glass. And there's lines of fractures that kind of go perpendicular to each other. And that's from stress that's applied. And so the, 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 there's definitely some stress. And you can tell that, like, because it's an anticline that the rock has been bowed up at that location. 
So it's just tectonic forces that have cracked the rock. That also explains why the head is the size that it is and looks the way that it does. Because if you if you go back to that black and white photo, you'll see that there's a fracture just behind the Sphinx head. And that's when I was just saying that I wanted to take a picture when I was there. Yeah, so that one that you can see it just in the rock, just behind the neck, and it goes through the member two limestone. Now you can see that it's got it's not quite vertical. It's got a little bit of a, a lean towards it. And and then if you look, there's another one, and then about an equal distance, there's another one, and that one's huge. It's called the major fissure. They do look and, pretty and, equal. I mean, look, they do look like there's some sort of pattern happening there yes exactly so now take that pattern and where would the next one fall if you went to the other to the to the right side towards the face it falls at about the face face yeah so guess what that's why the face is sloped back just like those fractures are so do you think it could have been like a jackal or a lion or something else or do you think that that is kind of close that's to what it was completely impossible shock should okay. know that's impossible I, robert temple's not a geologist he has he's not he has no experience with any of this i can see why he'd say that but you can see those fractures so the reason that temple is wrong is easy because if you tried to carve a jackal um it's just gonna fall the, the snout is just gonna fall off but you couldn't even carve it because there's fractures so the size of the head was a, a fracture free zone now for shock Remember what I was saying? Remember what George Reisner said is that the top of the head, which you're basically seeing right there, that's the that was the original surface. Right. So somewhere in here, back up a few more slides, you'll see where Shock's depiction of a lion is um in this presentation. It's it's not too far back. Um, got to be, well, maybe it's the other way. I thought it was in there. Yeah, go, go towards, well, no, we already did from the end. I know it's in here. There's an nylometer. Okay, maybe it's right after shocks. There, that's it. So he's got a depiction of a lion. Well, there was never enough limestone to make a head that size. The top of the head, that layer that was deposited during the Miko, the capstone, and you can tell that whatever caused it, you can tell that's there because there's a wadi to the south, which indicates that there was a softer layer that was eroded away and that's why there's a little bit of a wadi a valley to the south of the sphinx so that head that's being depicted here is impossible that could never have been built and any geologist should know better but that could that's impossible at giza there's look if if he did a cross section of the area and and again you can prove that by drilling uh just to the south of the sphinx but I mean, George Reisner pointed that out back in 1942. So, and so, and also, here's the thing. Well, I mean, that's the whole alignment and Orion and at that 10,500 year marker for Hancock, it's, it would be the lion's face facing Leo. Um, 
at the solstice. You want another explanation his... for Leo? Yeah, yeah. No, I'm just telling you what okay. his... Yeah, yeah. So in Europe and all over, they have lion fountains that are dispensing water. So I don't know how long it's going to take us to find the nilometer data, but the nilometer... I'm not even sure it's in here. The nilometer data. Oh, there's nilometer Niles data. Here. I already passed by it. I'll find it. Yeah, but that was like, that was like. So here it I, is. I, there's one where, well, so there's a graph that shows the annual, not that one. There, there's another slide. I don't think it's in here. Okay. Back up one more. Is there, is there another slide? There's nah, a groundwater value. So what no, it is, is, yeah, there's not. No. So what happens is that the Nile rises in August. So the Sphinx is looking and it was on the edge of the Nile. So August, so the Sphinx is water. The, the the lions are water. I mean, I don't know how you you're more in the ancient historian than I am, but this is that's that's the the tie-in is that the 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 head the lion dispensing there's lion fountains dispensing water to this day, and so the Sphinx is looking at the Nile rising in Leo every in August every year. There's your tie-in from a lion to what the lives, the daily lives of the Egyptians are. If you're there 12,000 years ago and the sun is rising, you're going to see the sun. You're not going to see Leo. You're going to see the sun. You're going to have to go, oh, wait. Actually, the Leo is behind that, but you're not going right. to see it. But you're actually going to be in August and see the Nile rising. And that's when they would stop working on the farms because they couldn't because the whole valley was being flooded. So, so there's a, there's a what's the is that the prevailing? So I I'm trying to think what it what was it from a great courses. I don't know if you know who Bob Breyer is. Do you know who that is? He's an Egyptologist. I think he specializes in mummies. I think but, I know who that is. Yeah. Um, but I remember his great courses lecture. Him talking about um, so everybody always thinks that slaves built the pyramids or slave labor, but he was saying that it was actually craftsmen and farmers and when the Nile would flood and there would be the rainy season that then they would go work on the pyramid as like some sort of massive, you know, project where they could continue to work and do stuff. Exactly. So um, I don't know where this was, but I remember reading or hearing this somewhere that one of the reasons they think the Egyptian civilization was stable for so long that it didn't go to war like all the other countries I mean, it definitely, they definitely had wars. And again, this is, <clears throat> this isn't my area. Yeah, they were, they were, they were attacked attack. a lot. Yeah, they were attacked a lot. But Outsiders. It was, it was a make work project. So the idea is, is that it was kind of a make work project to keep the people busy so they didn't have time. I don't know. I mean, I read that somewhere. I, I, I can't give you a reference. I just remember. Well, going, what are they telling hmm, people? Like when you were in Egypt, like what do they tell people now on like the tours and stuff? Oh my goodness. Um, we had a tour guide <laughs> at Giza, and we asked him to leave because <laughs> he he didn't really know very much. Gotcha. <laughs> and um, the hotel just sort of assigned him to us, and we we're like, because uh, I knew quite a bit, and I I didn't need him to tell me things because he's telling sure. the touristy things. But I don't rem I, so I don't know. Yeah. No, I was but just again, curious, like what gonna... the the ideas that are circling around there are currently. Well, I don't know anybody else that's ever said that the, the 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 Sphinx is the lion fountain looking at the Nile floods in August. I've not heard that any place else. 
but um when i looked at it because i'm like yeah okay if if i i don't know what the significance is of that i'm not saying it's even a major point but if you're looking for a tie-in if you're because that's kind of like for me grasping at straws to say that it's looking at its self at the horizon i'm like uh i don't know i mean well i mean that's the because then it comes into like so now you know mark leonard will say oh 20 years or 25 years and then people are like that took 25 years that only took that long and then you have people like graham hancock will say there wasn't even enough living people in that region to produce the amount of labor needed to you know move the blocks etc so you have like different like it would just be nice if like archaeology could at least come together and have at least some basic you know premise so that just so we have like a talking point. So if there is an alternative theory or whatever, because I know there was a, an internal ramp theory going around for a while, Jean Pierre something, Lubitin or something like that. And he was like a software guy and used <clears throat> his, his computer modeling and how, you know, there was an internal ramp idea happening there. And I remember some stuff like that, but I was just curious if you knew or I'm not like an expert or anything and I'm not, I'm not as deep down this I rabbit hole as I once I was. But... I really haven't looked much at the pyramids, but yeah, I mean, uh, you could. It seems my my thought would be the same. It seems like that was built in 30 years. Um, one of the questions when I met with Mark Laner, I met with a guy who was there, um, Glenn Dash, and after I met with Mark in Boston, this is like I don't know, almost 10 years ago now, he asked, "Why is there so much water?" in the pyramid and <clears throat> i was like because they somebody tried to use ground penetrating radar i've never used ground penetrating radar but as i understand it you can't look past the water that that if there's a lot of water it doesn't work and they could so they were trying to look inside the pyramids with the radar and couldn't see anything and i said well there's two sources that that water could come from one is if the quarry was saturated by the nile floods and I don't know where that, was, that quarry might be. And the second one is, is that they lubricated the limestone with water. And I'm guessing they used some of the Nile sediment as, a, as additional lubricant. And so they dragged the block. So I would say that since there's a lot of water, and, and, and I did modeling on that. So if you, if you had water in my software, so if you had water, it's like the first 30 feet of water will evaporate. But past 30 feet, it's never getting out of there because it's it. So you're going to you're just looking at diffusion. And there's actually a term called tortuosity where the molecule is now bouncing off of the, the pores in the rock. So it's going to take this really convoluted path to get out and it'll never get out. It's going to take if those if if there's water in the pyramid, it's going to be there for a long time. I mean, it's not like dripping wet, but. There's a lot of water apparently in it. And I, I just know that from an email that I got. Interesting. Yeah, I know. I who did we have on? Oh, uh, Andrew Collins was talking about how the, he went, you know, they discovered there's a cave system under the Giza Plateau. Um, and that, uh, I mean, could there have been some sort of water thing happening under there but if, if there's a cave what would that mean if there was a cave under the plateau like well, geologically I mean, the, the area is ripe for a cave in fact i would argue that what 
the major fissure on the back of the sphinx as we were looking at those fractures, I would describe the major fissure as a cave. And it was a cave that was not found until they started constructing the sphinx. They carved it from the top down. And as they removed that upper layer of high quality limestone, that's when they found a cave. And I was like, well, what's a cave? So a cave is a void in a rock big enough for a person to enter, even if they have to remove material <clears throat> that was in that area for them to enter that. that. That's considered a cave. So using that definition, there was a cave on the, on, on the Sphinx. And it was when they found that, and Mark Lehner basically describes it. He doesn't use the word cave. He just describes it as a major fissure. And what that did is it fell exactly where the rear paws were supposed to be. So it was, I forgot how many meters wide, it's like three meters wide at one point. So you cannot carve uh, the rear paws out of thin air. So what they did is they extended the body of the Sphinx. And this is in Mark Lehner's dissertation and filled that gap with blocks and then carved the rear paws out of the in-situ member one limestone. This is why it's disproportionate. Mark Lehner makes that very clear. Yeah. Why nobody else ever says what Mark said in his dissertation and, you know, say, well, the head's too small, must have been a lion or something, without ever referencing what it actually is that Mark Lehner had said. Interesting. Is it locked? No, I mean, oh. it's cutting on a little bit, not the worst. We're okay. I think it'll, it, it'll I see that move a little. Around. Um, so in terms of, uh, what do we think about underneath the paws? Is there a hall of records? Is there any sort of cave things around? Yeah. I mean, cause obviously you're a geophysicist, so I'm sure if anybody was going to get into the rocks that way, it would be you. But is, I know that they've tried to scan, uh, the pause or something, or there's rumors that it was done and they didn't find anything. I don't know if you've heard any of this stuff or what you think about it. Well, so actually that the area has been drilled, but as a geophysicist, let's go down that path first. So they actually, uh, Jacques, I'm not sure I'm pronouncing his name right. He was a French guy, Jacques Loxman, something like that. And I should know because <clears throat> he worked for TPGF Horizon a geophysical company in just outside of Paris. And uh, I've been in his office. He wasn't there at the time. And the reason I was in his office, and it, what he did is he used microgravity to locate a void in the pyramids. And basically what you do is you measure the gravity at one level, you see the pull of gravity at one level, and then you build a very stable platform. And you then measure the pull of gravity at another level. And you use one as a, as a, it's called downward continuation. And you can then mathematically simulate what's going on down below. And so that's a method that you could use to locate a void. To do it properly though, you have to know what's above you in a, in a pyramid. So it's not, it's not a very good method to be trying to to use in a pyramid but he did that and he, pr he presented a paper on it that was my first introduction and he actually quit cpgf horizon to do more stuff like that with the pyramids and things and that's why i was offered his job and i turned it down to work in paris to do that i was like really 
I because that I remember like that actually happened. So if I were gonna look for a void, I would use gravity. But again, you've got the same issue where you've got the sphinx. So if you could just if you had a flat surface so that you know that all you're measuring is differences in gravity that's coming from below you as opposed to some of that gravity actually pulling things up. And it's very sensitive. You, you can actually, you have to account for all these different things. But Shock went out <clears throat> and he did tomography. I didn't include this slide, but he went out and he, he did seismic tomography. And tomography is like a CAT scan with, with an X-ray. And really, you can't focus an X-ray. There's very little that you can do with it. But if you take an object and you rotate it and you have a detector, you can build up an image of what's in there. Probably the best way of describing it is imagine if I took something like a key or something and put it into a block that's very opaque. And I got a really bright flashlight and then shine it through. And I'd be like turning it and going, oh, there's a key in here. I can see it because with that really bright light, it's, it's going to come through. So you can do the same thing with seismics. But instead of measuring differences in the intensity, which you're doing with a CAT scan and which your eye is doing with the, with the flashlight, you measure differences in arrival time. And what the premise is, is that when you go out there and you, and you map that, you, um, where, where you're going to get a longer, slower arrival time is going to be a weathered limestone. And a, and, a, and a more competent, harder limestone will give you a higher seismic velocity. So he went out and he measured, and, and part of the premise is that he can measure the differences and that if the Sphinx is in fact um, older, then that limestone surface of the Sphinx enclosure would have been exposed to erosion and weathering. And so that should have a lower seismic velocity than the limestone beneath the Sphinx, which has been protected by the Sphinx itself. So he went out there and actually got exactly the opposite pattern. He doesn't mention that in his paper. He mentions one anomaly, but I went back and looked at his data and I said, oh my goodness, this, this isn't even close to what, what, what's going on here. <clears throat> then he goes even further though, because what you can do is you can only measure that, like that beam of light, like an X-ray at that level. So he had geophones on one side of the Sphinx enclosure floor and, and, size, and, he, and he hit the ground with a hammer on the other side. And he had geophones there, I think too, he, he might've gone that far. And then he um, would, would get the level of seismic velocities at the level of the Sphinx enclosure, 20 meters above sea level. Somehow he manages to say, no, that mapped the Hall of Records, which I've heard him say extends to as much as 25 meters, which means it's five meters below sea level. Forget that it's below the level of the Nile. It's below sea level today. So you, that method can't be used to do that. He can't possibly have located now, he, he, had he done three-dimensional tomography, had he had boreholes where he put the seismic you know, sources and the geophones at depth, then yes, you could map, and with great detail, you could map and, and discern whether or not there's a hall of records. But there is no hall of records, and it was drilled, and the first person who drilled it is Mark Lehner. 
I mean, it sounds like the Sphinx itself is the Hall of Records in, in, in terms of geology. It's showing you this weird anomaly that happened 40 million years ago. You're talking about how the stones, you know, breaking apart because, you know, I mean, I, that's the way I would think. And I'm not saying that that's what that is, but um, you could say that. Have you ever talked to Shock or had like a debate with Shock no. or engaged with no, them? No, I'd love to. Do you think I've, you would? I've, I've... I have no idea. I'm willing. I'm willing to talk to anybody. Yeah. So the thing is, is, you know, I, I, when I contact scientists, I mean, I've been in contact, like I say, with Walter Alvarez and Mark Lehner, Farouk Albaz, um, Scott Wing, uh, a ton of different people, the, the, the people that did the White Sands footprints. I, I talked to them. You know, I, these people respond. I have an it's idea about that, too. And tell me, because you're a geologist, I don't know if this would matter, but White Sands, what happened there, re, like, within the last hundred years? I have, I mean, that's Lots of area. nuclear that's testing. To... Lots of nuclear testing in that area. Um, <laughs> but I, my question is, doesn't that have an impact then on radiocarbon dating, or no? I would think not. I mean, so the question would be, that's a good question. I, there's, there's some chance, because I mean, I'm thinking about my day job now. So uranium is actually uh, water soluble, as I understand it. And so, yeah, if it, if it were to fall on it, but I'm, I don't know that, that, that surface there, I don't know where, where they are. That surface, I just watched something on this again recently, is constantly eroding. So the footsteps that you, the footprints that you're seeing there today won't be there in a couple of years. So I don't know. That's not my area. I, 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 don't I just, for some reason, I don't know why I thought I, that, I but I, I just, for some reason, I think of, obviously we're talking about half-lives and uranium and testing. And I just would think that we're testing all these nuclear weapons. Wouldn't the fallout from that have some level of impact on data in the area when you're testing that if that's partially so I, I don't know i'm not a scientist carbon, i'm just asking questions here so i'm guessing they used carbon 14 which i'm sure isn't i don't think that's not my area but i don't think that's associated with nuclear tests like uranium so yeah so they wouldn't be dating with uranium they'd be dating with carbon 14 don't know but what I'm getting at the, is that I so read that I, paper I too. I have to go back and look at it. But I, for some reason, that popped in my head. I don't know why. Yeah. Um, no, I thought that was a really good question. <laughs> I'm, I'm definitely going to look into that. Um, um. So, so back to the shock. So, uh, just so you know, I mean, you're welcome back on the show anytime, obviously. But if there's anybody that would like to, to have an open dialogue or debate or whatever, I'm willing to host it on the show. I mean, that's what the show is built for is to have kind of both sides when we're talking about mysteries. What do the academics say? What do the alternatives say? Can we find some sort of meeting ground in the middle? Maybe we change some minds on either side. I don't know. But I'm always willing to host an open and fair dialogue. And I think I've been very fair in my critique of alternative and fringe people and uh, as well as representing them in a better way than they get credit for sometimes so um yeah i don't know that's just my opinion on that but you're like i said if we can get whoever you want to talk to shock carlson hancock whoever all you're all welcome on the show and you will be treated fairly and equally and you can I'll, both, I'll be there yeah 
Well, if it's, it's send me an email, mindescapepodcast at gmail.com. So, so um, if I want to get back to something, because we were just talking about shocks. Yes. Hypothesis that the um, erosion that the that the limestone would have weathered. So weathering is different than erosion. So weathering removes some portion of the rock, but it basically stays in place. And um, erosion is the actual process of removing the rock. So it's it's transported away. Can you go back to that um, depiction of the lion? Is that available? The one that Chuck had? Here's something again that nobody's ever pointed yeah, out. Yeah, let me I, I uh, here. Let's see. I'm trying to think if it was towards. I think it was towards the end. Actually, it was I think it was towards the end. Yeah. No, forty. Yeah, I think it's going to be right there. There we go. There it is. Okay. Okay. So now, if you look at from the back of the neck, just below where the word head is, and you go to the notch that's eroded, technically, people are saying that they're calling erosion that notch at the neck, which is not an erosion, but if you measure the distance, the shortest distance from the back of the lion's head to there, that's 14 meters. That's 14 meters of erosion. I mean, it's almost- That's as, crazy as to think about. As, yeah. That's almost as much, if you look at it, that's almost as much as the, as the back of the sphinxes above the sphinx enclosure floor. In fact, it might be more. Nobody ever points this out. Now, that little notch at the back of the neck is supposedly erosion, okay? But the floor where the rain is actually falling on, and it's also coming over the edge, like Lehner said, and sh saying shock is right. It's also coming over the, the edge and it's falling directly on the, on the floor of the enclosure, and it didn't erode anything. There's no erosion on the surface of the floor. How is this possible? Somebody's got to explain that to me in a geologic terms. That's impossible. That's what Shock is saying. Why this is a mystery is beyond me because it's obvious that can't be true. Yeah, I don't know. That's interesting. Um, yeah, I mean, it's crazy to think too because we keep, you know, most people will look at pictures of the Sphinx, but this thing's big and even what you're talking about these fissures and outcrops and this um the back of the neck there that little notch these things are actually huge so the other thing is is let's look at that fracture you can see it in this in this where the surface has supposedly eroded back about one meter somewhere in that neighborhood and yet and the rain is falling on that surface it can't be coming over the edge but it didn't erode the fracture. It didn't make the fracture any wider. And it has a fairly angular contact between the undulating surface. So where's the erosion from the precipitation on the fracture? Again, this is simple. You don't have to look very deep. I'm like, how can, how can this- Do they have, do they have any of the, the shoal member from the top, like, so I know, didn't they cut around the base of the Sphinx and they used the base for the blocks or some of them for the Sphinx temple? Is that correct? Oh, yeah. So, yeah. like, do we do we have stone from that top layer from that 40 million period somewhere, or did they oh, just no, discard no, it? Oh, no, no, because that stuff is so okay. soft, they, they discarded it. They couldn't gotcha. use that. Gotcha. And the only way I mean, this they, is preserved is because it was in sand so long and in and out and blah, blah, blah. Well, I mean, it's preserved 
could have continued but i mean yeah that's that that's that layer that's so, so like the egyptians obviously preserved it yeah the egyptians preserved it themselves but then after their civilization obviously goes away it's been covered in sand a bunch of times so do you think that that yeah, was so, hu huge in preserving that or so that 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 section the member two section if you look at the top of the member one it's cut as a shelf it's a horizontal shelf sitting on top of member one and it has an angular contact where it meets the undulations that are in member two. Again, in a little crevice like that at a corner, how in the, we don't have a picture of it here, how in the world could that be angular? And if it, you're going to say, oh, well, they carved it back to fit the blocks. Okay, well, then it isn't erosion. And because it, it looks the same as the other stuff. So we're back to the point where that's not erosion. But they also would have filled it all in. And so the back of the, the head there, that, that that layer that we're seeing, that little notch, that would have had limestone fit right in there, and and sort of been continuous, and it, and it worked out really nice. Again, it's it's a it's a fairly level interface there, so you just have the blocks. Do you think that their then, architects and engineers were like, "What the hell is going on with this stone? We just can't work with this stone," and they just keep? Oh no, no. So if you go. There was one where there's a there you know the the tunnel, everyone's like oh there's this tunnel at the, the at the rear end of the Sphinx. Um, there there's a line drawing of that at some point in this presentation. <clears throat> I don't want to start looking at my end because I'm not sure what that's going to do. <laughs> but there's there's a line drawing, and um, it's it's a boring. Can you find it? Yeah, let me see here. Um, it's a, is it this? The Hall no. of Records one? No. That's the best you can find in the Hall of Records. <laughs> it's um, far more detailed than that. Keep going. It's probably, oh, it's got to no, be the other it's, way. It's got to be, yeah, it's got to be the the beginning part of this slideshow. Sorry, well, so folks, as you're looking for hanging in there. Well, I'm trying. So as, as you're doing that, um, it's a test boring. You, you know, so I work as a geologist and, you know, you get out onto these sites. You don't just start building something without having some idea of what you're doing. You put in a test boring or two and you find out what you're encountering. And so that's what they did. Is it this one? No, no. no. Keep going. It's I know it's in here. Um, right there. Okay. So that's a test boring. So what that is. And so if you see about halfway down um, on that, where, where it starts going more vertical, above that, there's blocks. And those blocks were placed there. Um, I'm going to say those are the original, the original blocks right now, but I'm not 100% sure. And, <clears throat> but there's a shaft. And so that shaft there extends to the water table. So it goes down what is it about five meters below the enclosure floor which is that line that you see the little bit that's on the far left edge of that <clears throat> where there's some text that's that's the floor of the enclosure and there's a block there that if you move it you can climb into this and you can actually go down into that tunnel you can also go up you can also go up but at a certain point you're going to hit concrete and it's also as you as you climb up there and you get into that member two, that's where it's so, so soft you can crumble it. It's one of the places where people have noted that. But 
here's the thing that boring has the signature of ancient tool marks and it was carved from the top down so it doesn't start at the level of the sphinx enclosure it starts somewhere up above and it goes down and what i think this thing is is a test boring and you can kind of see how it mimics the surface of the sphinx <clears throat> which you can see with the blocks on the left. And then right, if you look right. a little bit more, to, kind of mimics that same curve. So why is this test boring in the Sphinx? Well, because of the major fissure and they elongated the Sphinx. And so unintentionally, the test boring has been incorporated into the Sphinx. This is just my take on it. I mean, I'm not hanging a lot on it, but I'm saying that it, it makes perfect sense. So they knew before they even started carving the Sphinx, they knew that there was this high quality limestone of the head. There was a second layer that wasn't as good a quality. And they knew that the member one was a, a better, not quite as good, but a decent quality. And, and they knew that because I'm going to guess because more than just one test boring, there's got to be, I'm guessing there's a few more, but maybe they just did the one. That's what, what a, I'm, I'm thinking this is. What about, so like, if you're there in Egypt, and obviously you're a geophysicist, somebody qualified to study rocks, would they let you take a sample of that of those shoal members or no? <laughs> or do they already have it and let say, hey, or you can look at it? Or how does that work? Well, I mean, I, I thought of that. So actually, they, they did drill it. You can go online and you can find Mark Lehner is... Um, actually doing a decent job, a very good job of, of of logging what's coming out. And they drilled into where the Hall of Records is, according to Shock. although now they're saying, yeah, he missed. They, they didn't get to the right spot. They just missed it. And, and there's uh, all these cores that are somewhere. And I asked Mark if that was possible to examine those. And Mark said that, have you ever watched Indiana Jones, the warehouse at the end? It's stored in a place that's even yeah. worse than that. Where we've got the aliens. Said, nobody, nobody <laughs> will ever find that. But here's the thing. So you could, you, could, you could test a lot of this stuff if you just went to the south of the Sphinx. There's, and, 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 you, and you put in a, a boring there on the hill to the, to the south because it would then cover the layer. You'd see the thickness of the member three You'd see the, you know, the member two would be without question. You could do that. And then you could be testing for various isotopes and you could verify whether or not it really is the Miko that's exposed at the neck. Um, so yeah, you, there's a lot that could be learned from putting in a boring like that, but no, you can't, you're not supposed to take anything out of Egypt because people have done so much looting from other countries and taken artifacts out. You can't yeah, no, but like, couldn't you go to them and be like, "Hey, can you test this? I have a hypothesis." Or does is do they just not allow scientists to like even investigate things like that? Um, like, would you have to go through like the University of Cairo, or like, how would that? Like, obviously, people study these things, right? So, like, how is this happening? I don't think they'd let me, as an independent researcher, do anything, and I I, I think that would be right. Um, if I teamed up with a university. You know, and they did it, or Mark Laner, yeah. Um, but 
like I say, what I'd really want, if I could, if I could get there, I'd want a boring to the south. I want to know with complete accuracy how thick member three is. And I want to know, I want somebody to do the analysis for various isotopes um, I, through that. You could do paleomag too. And, but, but do they not have, see, this is what I don't understand is if, do they not have that stuff already like sampled and like the data out there? I would imagine whoever's, no, that's crazy to me that they wouldn't even take no. the stone from these things and like at least run tests on them to see like composition and anything that they can find. I don't know. That just sounds crazy. Well, to they've, me. they've done some tasks. I, I should qualify that. So what other people looking at, and I can't think of their names right now, Gari, um, they, they did analysis looking at the limestone and with the wicking and the salt accumulating. I'm trying to remember that paper. Did they use actual rocks? I don't, I don't know. Um, no, I mean, they're, they're just so cautious with all of this. I, I just find it so hard. It's like they can't get a little tweezer out and just get a little piece of stone. And you know what I'm saying? It's just, it's, it's, this thing's falling apart anyways. Let's, let's do some science on so it. So one of know? the things, one of the things you could do, and it's not evasive, is you could measure the magnetic susceptibility of the rock. And what that would entail is somebody who's a rock climber climb on top of the Sphinx and say every six inches or something like that, measure the magnetic susceptibility. And the reason you'd want to do that is, is I already said that member three has a higher clay content. So that's a higher iron content. So you'll measure, you'll find changes in the magnetic susceptibility as you're going down, which would be a strong indicator if you if you found that suddenly changing at the neck that that would I know be next time you go there we got to put a magnet suit on you and just have you <laughs> <laughs> try and throw you on it like one of those games you know well that would that would be easy somebody somebody yeah. could do that i mean it wouldn't take you know long at all and it's totally non-invasive except somebody would actually have to climb up the sphinx and then you know rappel down the side and take measurements as they're going Interesting, interesting. Um, so, if you had to date it, do you you then th- you were along with the forty five hundred roughly timeline or forty five hundred years ago? Is that what you're what you're? Oh yeah, yes. I I I'm in total agreement um, that I always get the names of the. I'm not an archaeologist with the second pyramid. I'm just going to say that. So the causeway. So there. So it there was Kafre, a long. Pyramid. Kafre and yeah. Khufu. I, I Khufu's the Khufu's the dad, the Great Pyramid. Kafre's the okay. middle one that appears so to be larger with so the, the limestone capsule or the capsule. So, it. so it's 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 most likely associated exactly as Mark Laner said with Kafre. Uh, <clears throat> for me, the the Egyptians were obsessed with aligning things east, west, north, south. You know, Hancock and and those people. They also are obsessed by pointing out how accurate they did that. And it wasn't really that hard to do. But the southern wall of the Sphinx enclosure does not go east-west. It abuts up against the causeway. So what in the world? That means the causeway was there first, and they did what they could. And it does not go east-west. So that is going to be 
one of the ways in which I would date when the Sphinx was made. Now it could be late in 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 the other pyramid, the first one, where they thought of it because remember that layer was continuous across, and somebody had to say, "Hey, save that portion of the member three limestone, so we can make." the sphinx so it depends upon when they were actually doing their quarry this differs again from a lot of other people because most people are saying that the sphinx head was some kind of mound there was some kind of hill of the member three and the rest of giza was basically the surface that you're seeing today well that's a soft layer if that was exposed and you could see that though like if you see any of the mountains in those areas they it does look like there could be like you could carve a sphinx out of it like the way that the the stone is propped up like for instance i forget which channel is it it's ancient architects it might have even been one of his videos on the sphinx where there was like some other site where it naturally just looks like a sphinx like somewhere oh, yeah. in the, in the region. So like that area is kind of like what you're saying is that there there's natural formations that already invoke kind of those that symbol or symbolism. There is there is a place at Giza where people have if you take the photo at just the right angle it kind of looks like another sphinx. But you know, take it from a different angle it doesn't look like that at all. Yeah, there's there's all sorts of stuff. Although I did see something where they found some sort of camel carved carved out of camels carved out of the side of a mountain, which is not very clear, but it's definitely what it is. And there there is stuff like that um, in the Middle East in that region and stuff. Um, yeah, let's. So we talked there's, about I, getting. That's the, you want to. I want yeah, to go ahead. Mention, I want to mention something. So that is um, the rock art. So it's again one of the slides, but there is rock art along the Nile, which was dated. With Let's see if I can find it. I think it might be right here or somewhere around here. It was the one with the guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You'll see there's a guy right next to the rock art. Right there. We got that it. That one. Okay. This kills an older Sphinx again. How many times am we going to do this? We do it right now. So this rock art, they were quarrying this. They were destroying this. Nobody really looked at it and then said, oh, my God. So it turns out that with the opt there, 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 a section right where that bowl is that you see in the center of the slide, a portion of the bowl was buried in sand. And what they did is they did optically. Normally, you can't date rock art. It's, it's very, very difficult to say what's how long has this stuff been here? And it's extremely difficult, but the sand covered it up. So the rock art was there before the sand was there, because when you remove the sand, you see that the rock art continues. And so they went out and they and they dated it, and it dated to fifteen thousand years old. As you can see, it's. In I mean, I was going to say, kind of looks like something from like Le Show. Um, it does. Or. <laughs> Um, it does. Even something like from Spain from that time, Altamira. Or, You're you know, not the only person, and and people are like, they're they're, they're actually a, the archaeologists. They're kind of like, yeah, well that that can't be. But technically, they're actually saying that this is actually a few thousand years older, which would make it more around twenty two, twenty four thousand years old. So now you're in the same 
you have art that looks the same and it's roughly the same age. Yeah, but I'm trying to think know... the, the oldest rock art I knew about was because of some entheogen connections, which was Tassili and Ajir, which I think it's in North Africa, and they have the the mushroom shaman and the giraffes and all the stuff. Oh, but yeah, looks, that's it, just it, amazing stuff. And that's like 9,000 BC, I believe. So this is... Oh, that, was, that was during the Green Sahara. Yeah. And again, it wasn't eroded. But here, this is along the Nile. Okay, so now if the Sphinx is older and, and it's been eroded by precipitation and that precipitation fell over all of Northern Africa. Why is this rock art still here? Why is it so pristine? This is again, impossible because they're saying that it eroded the Sphinx, but at the same time, it really didn't do anything here. It, in fact, it didn't even wash the sand grains away that were blown there by the wind. Yeah, that's interesting. Those that does look see that looks very different than all the other art too. I mean that that looks very very old in my opinion. Um, so the fact that it's that well preserved too is kind of crazy. It's insane. And like I say, they were actually so. If I went back to Egypt, you're asking me about you know tours and stuff. This is one of the sites I want to go to. Tourists don't go here. Tourists don't even know about this. Most people don't know anything about it. But I'm like, no, this is where I want to go. This is you know, the oldest rock art in Northern Africa. I was thinking I wanted to go like to Gilf Kabir or maybe some places in Libya, you know, like you were saying, the giraffe, I mean, which is just one of, if it's the one I'm thinking of, it's just amazing. Yeah, it's Tassili and Ajir. Here, I'll try and find it if I can. The... But here, look at this. This yeah. is this is dated to 15,000 years ago. It's not eroded. Yeah, so the where the where I'm talking about is a it's called Plateau of Rivers. It's in a national park in the Sahara Desert, located in the southeastern part of Algeria. Is that the one where they pour the water on the giraffe? I mean, it's so intricately carved. It might carved. be. I don't know. There is a giraffe. I know for a fact there's giraffes on this one. There's also uh, a bee shaman who's got mushroom fingers because that's what Terence McKenna used for the cover of one of his books because it's one of the earliest oh, depictions of entheogenic use uh, aside from Selva Pascuala, which is a, a, a cave in Spain, 7,000 BC that has the bulls and then the obvious psilocybe mushrooms below it, which is psilocybe mushrooms grow from cow dung. So, <laughs> Really? Yeah. So anyway, so this, this proves right here that the sphinx can't be older you have somebody has to explain how this rock art still exists how the sand which was there for fifteen thousand years didn't get washed away this this kills it <laughs> again well, it's, it's amazing yeah I, it's um, an amazing thing. it seems like too like we always focus on you know the giza plateau and the nile but I, from watching like some documentaries and stuff, like find this site obviously, and then there's another site. I think it was on the border of Sudan, um, and they, it was like some of the earliest. And again, there was some art, and there was also some possible hieroglyphics. And something else about the oldest hieroglyphics is not that close, I guess, to the main thing, which is like 3,200 years old or something like that too. So it seems like we focus on the 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 Giza plateau but there's probably tons of sites around there that also hold lots of secrets and keys and mysteries and things oh, like that. Oh without question the the Sahara is called the world's largest open air 
art gallery. There is art all over the Sahara. It's crazy. And it was that was during the Green Sahara period, the last one when the people were living there. And the art is just, it's stunning. It's amazing stuff. Oh, absolutely beautiful. I mean, look at that. I don't think I could do, I, even <laughs> even if I stared at a bull or a cow or something all day, I don't even know if I could do that. And I'm a pretty creative person myself. That's some, I mean, again, that's, these people hone this in over thousands of years and you have to assume that there was probably like some sort of, you know, master and, you know, artist and apprentice and oh, stuff yeah. like that. And exactly. I never thought of that. I agree with you 100%. I couldn't do that. <laughs> I never thought of that. Um, I, I think that way about a lot of ancient stuff that I'm in awe of. Um, like, how did they do that? You know, um, even when I know how they supposedly did it, it's still, I think that's where we get caught up to, right, on this topic is we want it to be mystery and this and that. But 4,500 years ago, it's a long time. I mean, it's very, very long. Um, for me, on my journey, the spiritual knowledge quest, looking to all the mysteries thing, doing this podcast for six years, interviewing all these people. Um, while I find this topic fascinating and everything we discussed here tonight is amazing, um, I've come to the conclusion, I don't necessarily think the age even like what is if, if I told you that I had a, a proof the Sphinx was 13,000 years old and I had proof would that change your life in any sort of way I mean like no. think you're gonna live your your life tomorrow <clears throat> the same way that you're if I gave you that that so like that's kind of how I look at it it's like I'm interested in it I love talking about the stuff I'm passionate about all these mysteries but if it doesn't have an impact on my daily life and my own philosophy and stuff like that then the actual timeline stuff of it doesn't really matter to me. It's it's I'm in awe of the human creative mind and like the mind to me is the most is the biggest enigma, right? Like that's why this is mind escape. The mind yeah. I believe is at the core of this this whole whatever this is and uh that's what I've come away with this. But I love this stuff and I'm glad that you're doing what you're doing because I think we need more people that are knowledgeable and passionate about stuff and willing to have open dialogues and debates and not be like, I'm right and you're wrong and blah, 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 blah. You know, like I hate that dogmatic approach to all this, whether it's alternative stuff or academics. I mean, you find it on both sides, but I just like open and honest dialogue. If you're not willing to say that you could be wrong, then you're probably not going into the right the dialogue, <laughs> you know, from like a, a, a position of truth. And that's why I always tell people like, the days of Plato are not that far gone. Sophistry. Uh, yeah, and, let me and, and, let me make the. I gotta, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. I got to make the point. This is my best take on it. This is the way I'm seeing it. I'm not saying it's 100 percent right. I'm saying this is what I'm seeing. I, as a scientist, as a geologist, this is what I'm seeing. Am I? Would I get upset if I'm proven wrong? I'd say no, thank you. Now I see that. I see where I went wrong. I wouldn't be upset with the person for telling me I'm wrong. I'd say, thank you. Now I know what that is. I thought it was this. And, and I use the analogy, we used to have to fix cars all the time. And you know, you get your cousin or somebody over and you say, well, it's the carburetor. And then, you know, it's, or the ignition. It turns out, I said it was the carburetor and it's the ignition. Am I angry with my cousin because he was right? No, 
It doesn't even make sense to me. Oh, but people do. People get angry. I mean, yeah, you're you're a logical, rational person, but yes, the people that people get very irritated and upset with stuff if you threaten their worldview or maybe they really believed oh. in this stuff. And it's tough because it's like fast food knowledge with the internet, right? Like everybody has access to anything and they can make, you know, aristic rhetoric run amok, right? Everybody's fighting to win or just to use words to, to beat each other, but they're not actually after truth. And that's what I always go back to Plato and sophistry and heuristic rhetoric because it's like that's what's happening on the internet right now. Everybody's just trying to win. Nobody actually gives a shit if what they're saying is the truth or not. I, I think another po- huge part of it is, and it's one of the reasons I haven't created a YouTube channel, it's all ego. <laughs> and I'm like, I don't want to do that. Even the debunking stuff's <laughs> ego-driven. It's both. I mean, it, it's not just the people that are pushing stuff. It's also the people pushing back ego, too. Exactly. And exactly. So I wanted to say one other thing that you said that I thought was really re- relevant. So um, I my my nephew texted me to say that Elon Musk was on Joe Rogan and Rogan asked him, you know, about the pyramids, you know, being in the Sphinx being older or something. I don't remember exactly what. And I love, it was basically the response you just gave. Elon Musk said, it really doesn't change anything. I mean, so the, the, the universe is what, 14 billion years old. The, the earth is 4.5 billion years old. And and the, and the scientists are saying that civilization begins, say, 10,000 years ago, and you want to push it back to 30,000. What's that in the scheme of things? It's nothing. Yeah. It doesn't change anything. And I, and I thought, because I said, so when I texted back, I said, broke, I, mean, I said, Musk didn't take the, take the bait. But that's the, I was like, that is really concise. I mean, that that's exactly what we're talking here. Why is this such a big deal it really changes virtually nothing well i think people want mystery i I think that there is a void right now with people i mean i shouldn't say that because there's a whole population of the world fighting over religion right now but for the most part you don't you don't get the vibes that you used to get of like how the importance of religion. at least me i mean and i grew up in like a catholic family so um there's there's definitely a loss of God or like some sort of greater moral order or something like that happening. And I think that there's a void and it's people gravitating, gravitating towards aliens, gravitating towards these mysteries. They want something in their life that invokes mystery and mysticism because that's what we've evolved with. You know, we started off as superstitious. Oh, if I, you know, wave my you know, stick at this tree, you know, might catch on fire if there's rain and lightning coming down too. And then that eventually turns into religion. And, um, you know, you get philosophy, thank God, because philosophy led to natural um, science and observation and everything like that. So again, but what does that even mean? Because we're still all in the same, like we were talking about, even with the Sphinx, even if you found out there was, you know, I think that there's only a few things that could change my outlook on the way I live my life. One of them being aliens, like knowing for a fact aliens are either here, had a hand in us in some way, like we're in a zoo. Like that's the only thing that could really, I think, encompass my attention more than just a day to day thing. Also, um, I'm trying to think what else could do that. Maybe knowing for a fact that there's something like consciousness survives or reincarnation or something like that after death. Um, 
there's only a few things that I could invoke that I think that would change the way I live my life. I don't know about you, but there's only a few of those mysteries that would make me go about my day differently, I think. That's a level of thought I haven't really given to this. If I had to answer that, I think, you know, what changed my life? I was raised a Lutheran, Missouri Synod. I was never a very religious person. And, you know, when you study geology, it doesn't take long. And you're, but, you know, it just slowly faded away. Now, does that change the way that I live my life? Yeah. But I think in very positive ways. Um, but, you know, so I'm a scientist. And all I care is what's true. I, I don't care if, if it turns out that ancient aliens is, is the correct answer, then fine. I don't care. <laughs> it's just, I'm not against that idea. I'm not just saying no. I'm like, that could be. But I, I don't see any of that. So I don't know. So what changed my life? I don't know. Learning is, for me, the, the excitement. And yeah, it changes your life that way. But I, I really, I don't know. I haven't really given that much thought lately. I mean, that's why we're here. If you want to come back on and think about some of these deeper, I mean, look, I like having, it doesn't, you know, you don't have to be an expert on philosophy or consciousness to have these conversations. I think that obviously you're an intelligent person that's put a lot of time into your work and techne and you know what you're, you know, looking to do. And I think that that's kind of important in a way, like having like a level of professionalism and, um, integrity within your research. I think that that's massive. And I don't think we have enough of that. I like when I tell, I tell people get offended. I tell people to read books all the time. They think I'm being like an asshole, but I, if they really read a lot of the books and knew what other human beings were saying, they could then derive their own rationale and like, Oh, these five books are BS. This one guy might've been onto something. And then these other two definitely had some level of truth or something like that, you know, and then you, you implore or you, you start to incorporate that into your own philosophies and, and way of life. And I think that that's what we're missing right now is like I said, it's fast food knowledge. People just look something up and think they have the answers. But in, in reality, that's like a simplification of probably years of research that somebody did that may or may not even be right. For me, it's, um, <clears throat> and again, this is maybe an oversimplification, but I think, and I mentioned a little of this before we started, I think what we're lacking is really cool big picture science. And to me, that's what Hancock and Carlson are selling. And the scientists and even one of the archeologists I've talked to, at first I said, you know, that's what you need to do. And, and he was like, no, after he thought about it, cause he's, at in the trash are more important to him and that's what he's devoted his life to and i'm like no is it still playing are we locked up no I, i'm I, you're there are you can you hear me hello can you hear me hello 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 can anybody hear me do we get locked up hello hello check 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 are we still here? I don't know. Hello, 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 hello. Hold on. Are we here? Are we here? Are we here? Hello, hello. 
Hello, hello. No. Hello, hello. Can you hear me? Hello, hello, hello. Check, check, check. Are we here? Hello? Hello.